Good morning. <clears throat> um, it's been a little while. I've been, uh, as you may know, I moved to NCS, uh, North Carolina School of Science and Math in Durham a few months ago. Um, and while we were on the ride, the two-hour ride with all my stuff in the back of the car on move-in day, we listened to a message like this one um, on the way there. And it really just changed the way that I thought I was going to carry myself while I was at school. And it's changed the way that I respond to people or share the gospel. And as you may know, today is what many churches celebrate as Reformation Sunday. Um, this comes because of Reformation Day, which is on October 31st. Wait, isn't that Halloween? No, it's Reformation Day. Um, Reformation Day is the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, this sparked what is known as the Protestant Reformation, which is just the recovery of true biblical teaching of the message of salvation, the gospel of salvation through grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Um, this year I would like to celebrate Reformation Sunday by bringing you a historical message to connect us back to sort of our church family tree. I want to do this because we've been shaped by thinkers and churches and generations of believers before us, and I want to honor that and bring some historical reflection to the church today. This morning I will be reading a sermon from Jonathan Edwards. He lived from 1703 to 1758. He's probably the best-known Puritan. Many People also argue that he is the greatest American theologian to date. Um, he was a brilliant mind. He was really smart. He entered Yale at 13. Eventually, he became a Congregationalist pastor in North Manhattan, Man, Northampton, Massachusetts, and he made many contributions to Reformed theology. He was one of the major leaders in the First Great Awakening. However, he was not a perfect man. He did get fired from his church for some views that he had on barring certain people from the Lord's Supper. After that, he ministered among the Mohican tribe in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and eventually he was elected the president of Princeton University, but he died quickly after this because of smallpox. Today I'll be reading his most well-known sermon. Excerpts from this sermon are commonly used in high school English classes. However, they are usually taken out of context and misunderstood mostly because of the name of the sermon. The name of the sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that seems, sounds derogatory, but he actually paints the picture as something good for the sinners, which you'll see when I read the sermon. Um, the version I'm reading today is a modernized version, so it's not the original, but it's brought up to standard English, and it's shorter by around half. Um, it was a very long sermon originally. This sermon was one of the many causes that sparked the First Great Awakening, and it had a large effect on the original listeners. But there are some things to be aware of about this sermon before I read it. Edward speaks with a lot of awareness about the holiness of God and his wrath towards sin. He speaks in kind of harsh terms about God's wrath, and, they might f and it might feel offensive in our modern culture, but it offending us probably means we need to hear it all the more. He admits that really even as harsh as he speaks about it, he's only hitting the tip of the iceberg. Human language cannot even get close to describing God's hatred of sin. So without further ado, I will now be kind of pretending to be Edwards and reading his sermon. 
Um, please bear with me. I do have some allergies, so I might have to take a sip of water occasionally. But let's begin. Deuteronomy 32:35. The time is at hand when their foot shall slip. In this verse, God's vengeance is threatened against the wicked and unbelieving Israelites. Even though God had performed many wonderful works for them, the Israelites remained in a state of stupor. They were given all the tools of spiritual cultivation, and yet the fruit of their lives was bitter and poisonous. The expression I have chosen for my text, the time is at hand when their foot shall slip, it seems to imply the following truths about their punishment. Number one, that the Israelites were exposed to a constant threat of sudden destruction. This picture of a sliding foot illustrates a constant threat of ruin. If a person stands or walks on a slippery surface, then a fall is always a pressing possibility. The picture of a slipping foot also teaches us of the suddenness of their fall. The person walking on a slippery surface is liable to fall at any moment. When he does finally fall, it happens suddenly and without a warning. Psalm 73, 18 through 19 expresses the same message. It says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Number two, the Israelites will only fall at God's appointed time. The only reason they had not yet fallen was because God's appointed time had not yet come. The text says their foot will slide, pulled down by their own weight, God no longer holding them up on these slippery surfaces. Instead, he will let them go, and immediately they will fall into their destruction. The point I now want to draw from this text is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked people at any given moment out of hell except the mere pleasure of God. When I say the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure and will. In other words, God is not being forced to hold wicked people out of hell by any obligation. He's not hindered by any kind of difficulty from dropping them into hell whenever he decides to do so. It is his mere pleasure alone that leads him to preserve the lives of wicked people. At any given moment, he decides to hold them up from the flames just because that is what he wants to do and for no other reason. The truth of this observation will be seen in the following considerations. Number one, God lacks no power to cast into hell. At any given moment, God has full power to cast wicked people into hell. Even the strongest people have no power to resist him. Neither can anyone rescue others from his hands. He's not only able to cast wicked people into hell, but he can most easily do it. There are times on earth when a ruling prince attempts to subdue a rebel and finds it to be extremely difficult. Perhaps the rebel has found a way to protect himself with a fortress, or perhaps he has made himself strong by developing a large following but it is never this way for those who rebel against God. No fortress can be built that would provide defense from his power. Though God's enemies join hands in vast multitudes, combining their power together, they are easily broken into pieces. They are like large heaps of light chaff in the path of a tornado, or a huge pile of dry stubble lying in the path of a furious fire. It is easy for us to stomp and crush a worm found crawling on the earth, and it is easy for us to cut or sin a slender thread that holds up a hanging object. Similarly, it is easy for God to cast his enemies down into hell whenever it pleases him to do so. Who do we think we are to attempt to stand before him? Do we not realize that his rebuke causes the earth to tremble and that giant, giant boulders are thrown around him as he moves? Number two, wicked people deserve hell. God's perfect fairness and justice calls out loud for their infinite punishment because the wicked are condemned by their sins. 
When they're cast into hell, they're receiving exactly what they deserve. Indeed, God's justice says, that, says of the tree that produces grapes like Sodom. Luke, 7, Luke 13, 7. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Only the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will will hold back the sword of his divine justice. Number three. Wicked people are already condemned to hell. Not only do wicked people deserve hell, but they are already under the sentence of it and bound over to hell. John 3.18 confirms this, where Christ teaches whoever does not believe is condemned already. Hell is the proper place where every unconverted person belongs, the place designed for every person who is apart from Christ. Hell is the non-believer's place of origin. As John 8.23 states, you are from below. Hell is the place of his final destination, assigned to him by justice, God's word and the sentence of God's unchangeable law. Number four, God is God, God's anger is the same now as it is in hell. Additionally, wicked people are right now, at this very moment, the focus of God's anger and wrath. Just because they are not falling into hell this very second doesn't mean that God has no anger against them. He's just as angry with them now as he is with the multitude of miserable creatures currently being tormented in hell. Indeed, God is substantially angrier with a large number of people who now remain on earth. Yes, without a doubt, God is angrier with some of you in this congregation than he is with people currently in the flames of fire. This is true even if you feel at ease about the situation. God always remembers and resents the wickedness of people. He's not forgetful or ignorant. Their damnation never sleeps. The pit is prepared and the fire is ready. The furnace is now hot and set to receive them, its mouth open beneath them. Number five, the wicked are condemned by the hellish, hellish principles reigning within them. In the very souls of wicked men, a foundation is laid for the torments of hell. Hellish principles are reigning powerfully inside the wicked and have full, full possession of them. These principles are capable even now of kindling the flames of hellfire into a blaze. They are the seeds of hellfire. If God were not restraining them with his hand, they would quickly break out into consuming flames. In the, in the scriptures, the souls of wicked people are compared to the troubled sea. Presently, God restrains their wickedness in the same way he restrains the raging winds of the troubled sea. He says to the sea, Thus far shall you come, and no further. But if God removed his restraining power, the sea would quickly carry away everything in its path. And so sin ruins the soul and makes it miserable. It is destructive by nature. If God leaves sin without restraint, nothing else would be needed to bring the soul to complete misery. Number six, wicked people have no security at all. People are always on the brink of eternity, their next step being into another world. No security comes to the wicked just because they don't expect to die soon. We can't even imagine all the unseen possible ways people might leave this world in the same way People, are, people in their natural state are cautious with their lives, but this does not bring them any moment of sure security. The liability of earthly and unexpected death is the same for all of us. Ecclesiastes 2.16 says, How the wise dies just like the fool. Unconverted people walk all over the pit of hell on a rotten floor, and there are innumerable unseen places in this floor that are too weak to bear their weight. All the possible ways sinners might leave the world are in God's hands. He has universal and absolute power over them. The mere will of God is always the determining factor as to whether sinners will enter hell at any given moment. Number seven, there are no schemes allowing the wicked to escape hell. 
When most people in their natural state hear of hell, they flatter themselves that they will escape it. Their natural man depends on himself. He considers what he has done, <coughs> what he's currently doing, or what he intends to do. He mentally plans and self-flattery convinces himself that he will avoid damnation. Indeed, the wicked hear that many people who have lived have now died and gone to hell. But each person still imagines that his plan for escaping hell is better than what other people had come up with. And so he does not intend to enter into that place of torment himself. However, when the foolish children of men place their confidence in their own schemes, they reveal their own miserable self-delusion. <clears throat> they trust in nothing but a shadow. It's not that those in hell had any less wisdom or that their plan of escape was not laid out well enough. Imagine if we could speak to these people in hell. We might ask each of them about when they were alive. Did you ever expect to be the subjects of the misery of, the, of this place? <clears throat> Doubtless we would hear them each individually respond, No, I never intended to come here. I had things planned much differently in my mind. <clears throat> Number eight. God never promised to keep any natural man from hell. God is under no obligation to keep such a person from eternal destruction, not even for one moment. The only promise that God has made concerning eternal life is contained in the covenant of grace, the promises that are given in Christ. He has made no other promise to grant eternal life or to deliver people from eternal death or to preserve them from it. But the wicked, they certainly have no interest in this promise of in the promise of this covenant of grace. This is because they're not children of the covenant and they do not believe in any of its promises. And so here's the situation. People in their natural state are held in, are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. <coughs> they deserve the fiery pit and they're already sentenced to it. God is dreadfully provoked by these wicked people. His anger is just as great towards them as it is towards those who are already in hell actually suffering the executions of his fierce wrath. Now these people have done nothing in the least to appease or abate God's wrath, and God is not bound in the least to hold them up, not even for a moment. He has made no promise at all to do so. Hell is gaping for them. The flames below gather and they flash about them, desiring to take them and swallow them up, while the fire pent up in their hearts is also struggling to break out. Furthermore, they have no interest in any mediator, and there are no means within their reach that they can provide themselves for security. They have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. The only thing preserving, preserving them each second is the mere arbitrary will of an angry God. His forbearance towards the wicked is provided without obligation. <clears throat> the reason I am using this awful subject of eternal punishment is so that it might awaken unconverted people in this congregation. What you have heard is true for each one of you who is outside of Christ. The lake of burning brimstone, a world of misery, is spread out wide, wide below you. There it is, just below you. Hell's wide, gaping mouth opens, and you have nothing to stand upon, nothing to grab that would hold you up. Only air stands between you and hell again. <clears throat> it is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up and keeps you from falling. If you are unconverted, most likely you are not even aware of this. You can see that you have not entered into hell presently, but perhaps you are blind to the reality that it's only God's hand that is now preserving you from falling in. You are distracted from this fact. Those things that have, kept you so, that have so far kept you from death are nothing. If God decided to withdraw his hand, none of these things would succeed in keeping you from falling. <coughs> 
They would be no more helpful to you than thin air is for holding up a person suspended in it. Your wickedness makes you heavy like lead. This heavy weight tends to press you downwards towards hell. And if God were to let you go, your sinking descent would be swift and immediate. These things have no more influence to hold you up from hell than a spider's web would have from stopping a falling rock. If it were not for God's sovereign pleasure, the very ground beneath your feet would not hold you, not even for a moment. God's wrath can be compared to, the, to mighty waters that are currently held back by a dam. The waters increase more and more, rising higher and higher, until an outlet for them is given. The longer the stream is stopped up, the more rapid and mighty it will flow once it is released. Yes, it is true that your evil works have not been judged yet. God's vengeance has not yet flooded out upon you. <clears throat> but all the while, the level of your guilt is constantly increasing. Every day you are treasuring up more of God's wrath. The waters are ever rising higher, pressing to go forward. It is the mere pleasure of God that holds these waters back. If God were simply to remove his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open. Then all the furious floods of the fierceness of the wrath of God would rush out. With inconceivable fury, these mighty floods would crash upon you with absolute power. The bow of God's wrath is bent with, is bent with the arrow ready on the string. Justice aims the arrow at your heart, straining the bow. It is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that prohibits for even one moment that arrow from becoming drunk on your blood. God is angry. He has made no promise to deliver the wicked. If you have never been raised from your state of deadness and sin and have been made new in Christ, indeed, you are in the hands of an angry God. It doesn't matter whether you've reformed your life in various ways, nor does it matter if you have experienced religious emotions. It doesn't matter if you practice some form of religion. It doesn't matter because none of these things have the ability to keep you out of hell's fire. Excuse me. It doesn't matter if you are unconvinced of the truth and what you, and what you are hearing. You will be fully convinced of it in due time. The people who are now gone, who are in a similar circumstance as you are currently, they are now fully convinced of it. You have dreadfully provoked the God who holds you over the pit of hell. He holds you up, much like a person might hold a spider or some repugnant insect over a fire. God abhors you. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks at you and he sees that you are worthy of nothing else but to be thrown into the fire. In fact, his eyes are so pure that he can't even stand to look at you. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his sight than even the most hateful venomous snake is in ours. And yet it is nothing but God's hand that holds you from falling into the fire moment by moment. There's no reason why you did not fall into hell last night except that an angry God was holding you, preserving you from falling this moment. There was no other reason why you were permitted to wake up from sleep once more this, in this world, and no other reason can be given why you haven't dropped into hell since you rose from your bed a little while ago, except that God's hand has held you up. Likewise, there is no other reason why you have not entered hell since you sat down here in the house of God today. As you sit there right now, you are provoking God's pure eyes by the sinful way you attend this solemn worship. Indeed, no other reason at all can be given as to why you, are, why you do not at this very second drop down into hell. O sinner, think about the frightening danger you are in. God holds you in his hands over a great furnace. You have provoked his wrath and he's angry against you. As he's with many who are already in hell, you are hanging by a slender thread. The flames of divine wrath are flashing around you the thin thread ready to sin it and burn it apart. 
You act like you aren't interested in a mediator to help you, and so you have nothing to grab that would save you. You have no way in your own power to keep the flames of his wrath off of you. Nothing you have ever done or will ever do would be successful in convincing God to spare you for even one mere moment. In order to help you see the gravity of your terrible situation, there are several truths that you must understand. Number one, you must understand whose wrath you are facing. <clears throat> you are facing the wrath of the infinite God. If this was merely the wrath of man, it would, be, it would not be near as important to be heeded. If it was the wrath of the most powerful ruler, it would still not even compare. Proverbs 20 verse 2 says that the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. But even the greatest earthly rulers at the high point of their majesty and strength are like feeble and despicable worms of dust compared to the king of heaven and earth. Remember the words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you to fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Number two, you are exposed to the fierceness of God's wrath. Revelation 19.15, he will tread the rind... He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. These words are exceedingly terrible. If the text had only said the wrath of God, that alone would have an infinitely dreadful implication. But it goes further than that. And it says the fury of the wrath of God. Oh, the fury of the wrath of God, how dreadful that must be. You can't even think of words that might describe that wrath. But it goes even further than that. The text says the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. It is his omnipotence that is enraged and his omnipotence that takes fierce action. This being the case, oh, what will become of the poor worms who suffer under the almighty rage? The pitiful creature who becomes a subject of God's wrath will be sunk into an unconceivable depth of misery. Consider these words carefully. If you remain in an unregenerate state, then God will execute the fierceness of his anger on you. He will inflict his wrath upon you without any pity. He will have no compassion on you, nor will he hold back his wrathful executions. He will not lighten his hand of wrath, not even a little. There will be no moderation or mercy towards you, for God will have no concern for your welfare. Ezekiel 8.18 says, Therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. When you cry out to God for pity, he will give you no regard or favor at all, but he will tread you beneath his feet. Isaiah 63, 3. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained my apparel. He will not only hate you, but his contempt for you will be at the highest level. There will be no place fit for you except under his feet, where, where you will be flattened like mud in the streets. You will not be able to bear the weight of his omnipotence walking on top of you. The wrath of the Almighty God is awful. But in spite of this reality, here in this present moment, God actually stands ready to pity you. Today is a day of mercy. Right now, you can cry out for mercy and receive encouragement that you might obtain it. Once this day of mercy has passed, however, even the most miserable cries from your soul will be in vain. Your most lamentable shrieks will be useless. You'll be totally lost and cast away. God will have no other use for you except that you suffer misery. This will be the only goal of your continued existence. 
You'll be a vessel of wrath, fit for destruction, good for nothing but to be filled up full of God's wrath. Romans 9.22 What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience, patience vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction? This is what will happen to you if you remain in an unconverted state. The infinite might, majesty, and horror of the omnipotent wrath is everlasting. No. Of the, of the omnipotent God will be magnified through the extremities of your indescribable torments. Thirdly, God's wrath is everlasting. Oh, but there is even more that you must understand. Think also about the reality that God's wrath is an everlasting wrath. Its duration is never-ending. It would be dreadful. It would be... Dreadful enough if you had to suffer under the ferocity of and wrath of God Almighty for only one moment. But you must suffer under the wrath for all eternity. There'll be no end to this exquisitely horrible misery. When you look forward into the future, you'll see a long forever, a boundless duration in front of you. This reality will swallow up your thoughts and it will agonize your soul. Your despair will be absolute as you see no deliverance in sight. There will be no end or alleviation to your suffering. You will know with certainty that you'll spend millions and millions of long ages wrestling and conflicting with God's mighty, merciless vengeance. And then when you have finally finished so many ages of enduring his wrath, you'll know that it was only a tiny point compared to what remains. Oh, can any person even express in words how dreadful is the state of a soul in that horrible circumstance? How dreadful is the condition of people who are in... How dreadful is the condition of people who are in danger of infinite misery daily and hourly. God's wrath threatens them, but this is the dismissal condition of every soul in this congregation who has not yet been born again. You might be very moral or upright and religious, but those things don't matter, for they can't save your soul. Oh, that you would think deeply about the fact that apart from Christ, you will endure this eternal punishment. There are good reasons to think that there are many people in this congregation, even hearing this very sermon, who will actually be the subjects of eternal misery. It might be that they are currently at ease with their souls. Perhaps they listen to this message, but they're not much disturbed by it. Perhaps they are flattering themselves, believing that they are not the ones facing the wrath of God. Perhaps they're promising themselves that somehow they will escape. What if we knew that there was one person, only one, in the whole congregation who would be cast into hell and become a subject of its misery? How awful to even think about it. What if we knew who it was? It would be terrible to even look at this person. The rest of the congregation would lift up a lament and bitterly cry over him. But I'll ask, instead of one, how many people do you think will remember this sermon while they are in hell? Furthermore, it would not be surprising if some of the people present in this service were in hell in a very short period of time, before this year is out or even before tomorrow morning. For those of you who live a natural full life, I suppose you'll be able to put off entering hell the longest. But even you'll be there quickly enough. No doubt, some of the people who, that you have already known are, all, are currently in hell. Their severe eternal punishment has already begun. Keep in mind, they did not deserve hell any more than you do. But here you are in the land of the living in the house of God. And you still have the opportunity to obtain salvation. What do you think those poor hopeless souls would give for just one day to have the opportunity you now have? Oh, right now, you have an extraordinary opportunity. Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open. He's standing at the door, raising his voice aloud, calling and crying for poor sinners to come and be saved. How can you rest one moment while in this condition? You who are younger men and women, listen carefully. 
Will you neglect this precious season? If you do, soon you'll be like the people who wasted all the precious days of their youth in sin. After a time living in that condition, they have arrived at a dreadful moment of blindness, a stage of life where their hearts are extremely hardened against the Lord. Oh, be careful not to fall into the same dangerous state of mind and heart. Our final plea. Let everyone who is still outside of the grace of Christ, who is hanging over the pit of hell, listen now. As God calls you through his word and providence, remember this truth. At times like this, when people neglect their souls, their hearts grow hard and their guilt increases. Therefore, let each of you who is outside of Christ wake up right now and flee from the coming wrath. So run to Christ and flee out of Sodom. Genesis 19.17 Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. This concludes Edward's sermon. I just want to take a moment of silence just to reflect on the words that we've just heard. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure if you're right with God. Maybe you know you're not right with God. As we've heard, you have an extraordinary opportunity right now to come to Jesus. To everyone here who is a believer, this should serve as sort of a wake-up call, a reminder to the situation of the sinner. And it should put a burden on our hearts for those of us, our friends who we know are not saved. This is the reality for them. If you feel led, the altar is open. I'm going to ask the band to come and do the last song.